welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. And today we are with a live studio audience here in Tacoma, Washington. We are at the Slaying Leviathan conference sponsored by Evangelical Reformed Church. And the folks here have done a great job. We've got a great audience. And uh, in case you aren't aware, uh, my co-host, Glenn, actually wrote a book entitled Slaying Leviathan. So I, I suspect that's where they got the name for the conference. That or it's copyright infringement. <laughs> that's right. right. Anyway, uh, for those who are new to the show or listening for the first time, just so you know who we are, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor of a church uh, at uh, meets in Vancouver, Washington. The church office is in Battleground. Uh, the church is... Uh, got a name that's probably the most common name in the world of Presbyterianism, Westminster Presbyterian Church. <laughs> anyway, uh, I've written some books, and my latest book is in the house of Tom Bombadil, and I've taught philosophy. I've been a real estate investor, commercial real estate investor, and done some other things. But that's enough about me. Glenn, tell us about yourself. I'm Glenn Sunshine, Professor Emeritus of History at Central Connecticut State University, Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associate at Reflections Ministries. That's really my day job these days. And a bunch of other stuff. Okay, great. And we are joined by Dr. John West. And uh, Dr. West, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and also give us a little uh, background on the Discovery Institute. Glenn and I know about it, but uh, maybe folks out in podcast land, this is the first time they've heard about it. Well, good. I hope they'll learn about it. So Discovery <laughs> Institute first is a think tank uh, that is based in Seattle, Washington, although we have uh, actually people in Texas and actually all around the country, but our main headquarters is in, in Seattle. And it focuses probably most notoriously on the issue of intelligent design, uh, that there is actually evidence in nature uh, that uh, a creator existed and, and created it. And so it's not just the product of blind and purposeless processes. So people like uh, Michael Behe, uh, Stephen Meyer, William Dembski, these are some uh, J. Richard Guillermo Gonzalez, some people might know about, David Berlinski. Uh, but uh, it also actually deals with other things like economics. George Gilder helped found it with Bruce Chapman. And so sort of uh, free enterprise economics, we're dealing with homelessness issues dealing with mass transit, you name it. But the largest program really does deal with evidence of design and purpose in nature, which is one of those big topics in the history of civilization. You know, where did we come from? Where are we going? Uh, are we just the product of blind and purposeless processes or not? Uh, that really gives us meaning or not, depending on how you answer it. So that's the Institute, and I've been there even before we got into intelligent design. It was founded in 1991, 92, and I joined in 1993. So other than the uh, president, the chairman of the board, I've been there the longest. So what I also do though there is our largest project on intelligent design is called the Center for Science and Culture. And so I co-founded that particular program in it with Steve Meyer, who is this philosopher of science, formerly of Whitworth University, but now just with Discovery. He, so he's the official director of the Center for Science and Culture, but we founded it together in 1996. And I was for 12 years a university professor at Seattle Pacific University, where I chaired the Department of Poli Sci. So when it comes to my particular interest in this whole area is freedom of speech, freedom of debate on science, and then the impact, the corrosive impact, but also the positive impact of science on, on culture. And uh, what C.S. Lewis, in a letter, once called Scientocracy, which, uh, and the abuse of science. Uh, so that is a particular interest I've written 
a book called Darwin Day in America, which is a history of social Darwinism in America in all sorts of different fields. Uh, I've, I love C.S. Lewis, so I actually co-edited an encyclopedia on C.S. Lewis uh, for the centennial of his birth, so that was some year, years ago. Uh, also have uh, done a book, this book, actually, uh, The Magician's Twin, which is on Lewis and scientism that maybe we'll have a uh, get into a little bit. Uh, but I have other interests. Uh, wrote a book on Walt Disney and his live action films and some of the political themes uh, in there. Uh, have done uh, some work. Uh, my earliest work as a uh, professor and before was on Christians in American politics and society in the 1800s. So from about 1800s to the 1830s, 40s, or just before the cusp of the Civil War began uh, really to get going. Uh, and so I have some things to say on that. So, and I've done films, so have an interest in scientific racism and how science was abused in that way. And so if people want to go on YouTube, they can find a film called Human Zoos that now has close to four million views that is, tells really the terrible story of scientific racism, but also how a number of both white and black ministers, based on the biblical belief of, that we were created in God's image, who, who actually did try to stand up against some of it, so. Yeah, well, we've got about seven or eight shows that we could do right now just <laughs> based on what you described. I, my, my first, uh, I guess, uh, exposure to the Discovery Institute, I think, was through Gilder. Uh, I learned about it through, you know, his work in kind of the economics that, uh, that uh, you know, he's known for uh, advocating. Um, because in, at that time I was involved in urban ministry and poverty issues and uh, c consequently that kind of thing was something I was thinking about all the time. But then, of course, with the intelligent design movement and some of the personalities that you, you, know, you named, I've read a number of those uh, authors. And anyway, there's a, there's a lot of great stuff uh, to think about with that as well. And to say, there's the connection there, and, and Gilder was very formative in my own life before I met him, um, when I was an undergraduate, the, the connection is, you know, in Gilder's view of the economy, it's not just about matter and material acquisition. It's actually about giving, and it's also about creation, which requires minds. Right, right. And so really, if, if I had to summarize what Discovery Institute is about overall, is it's that everything good, really, requires a creator. A, a mind and then who actually works in the universe. So that's true of, from the fine-tuning of laws of physics that makes this possible, it's true for the molecular machines inside our bodies. It's also true for the creation of wealth and products. It's not just this uh, blind material process of, you know, the most stuff that you can get or the most uh, material inputs. That actually is not what brings your economy forward. And for me, Gilder's insight on that was life-changing because when I was an undergraduate, I was partly in the business school at the University of Washington, partly in the journalism school for sort of a double program. When I took the economics courses that were actually taught at that time by some economically conservative professors, they taught economics as it was just about material acquisition. Right. These were conservative professors. And it was so, and I as a Christian, I was thinking, this is remarkably depressing. Yeah, yeah. And then I actually was going to a bookstore, it's no longer there on the Ave in Seattle, but it was called Logos Bookstore, and they had a copy of a paperback edition of Wealth and Poverty by George Gilder, and I read it. And here was someone who actually said, well, no, capitalism, it works not because of selfishness. Yes, there is selfishness, there are sure. bad capitalists, but that's not why it works. It works because it frees up people to create 
things and give things to others. In fact, entrepreneurs have to uh, delay their gratification on a lot of things. To They not only have to be inventive and creative, they have to be self-sacrificing for it to actually work. And that's what makes capitalism work. Not because, not greed. Greed actually counteracts true capitalism. And that was, uh, and years later when I met George and became friends with him, uh, that always has stuck with me as a formative thing. And I say with Discovery Institute, it's that the materialist fallacy coming out of the 19th century and going back to Thomas Hobbes and earlier, that you can explain everything we see from religion to morality to the creation of products and the economy to all the wonderful things in nature through some material mindless process that did not have the goal in view is preposterous, but it's also devastating to our culture and to our lives. And so to understand that the universe actually doesn't, didn't come about that way. So, so the, this is, I think, something worth kind of mining a little bit. Most people don't make that connection between materialism and cultural degrada degradation uh, or the undermining of the sort of the, the creative arts or the undermining of um, family life or business, its connection to uh, kind of the, I guess, impoverishment of uh, kind of a, an acquisi acquisitive approach to just business activity without kind of any regard for what you just described, the, the creative energies that are, you know, because there are a lot of entrepreneurs who have given their lives for, you know, the, the, you know the, the business that they're trying to create and they never get anything, <laughs> you know, and, and, but at the same time, uh, there are people like that who left behind some great things, you know, that we enjoy, people like Tesla, for example, who didn't actually do all that well monetarily, even though we today think he's just a huge and important figure in the history of at least electrical, you know, uh, stuff. Anyway, Glenn, anything you want to jump on here? Um, this is a lot of stuff to yeah. work with. Yeah, I, I was um, I was struck by the the moral issues or the ethical issues because when you look at someone like Adam Smith, he was of course a moral philosopher. You know, he specialized in well moral theology actually. And when he wrote Wealth of Nations, he really wasn't very positive about the merchant class as he saw it because of the problem of greed. But at the same time, he recognized a lot of the basic principles you're talking about, um, prices, information, all of those kinds of things that make the system work. So although he's considered sort of the father of modern capitalism, right from the very start, you had these concerns about greed and abuse. So let's, let, let's kind of take this uh, in a particular direction. I think it'd be worth uh, pursuing, and, and it ties in the science uh, to everything else. So when we think about the work of science, um, there are... Theorists have said that you know what what we see with the rise of science as we practice it today is a kind of reaction to Aristotle, kind of a rejection of uh, you know causation, a formal cause and and ends, you know tele teleology, and everything should be understood, or at least we should try to understand everything on a purely material, you know matter energy efficient you know material causes, um, and it's almost as though we've created an environment within which science is practiced that is prejudiced against any attempt to see a purpose in things. Can you kind of, kind of jump into that? I can see you've got lots to say. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting because that's what a lot of people say. 
Okay. And, and, and certainly that's what the Richard Dawkinses were of the world. Right. Richard Dawkins, the former uh, biology professor at uh, Oxford University, who's you know one of the world's leading Darwinist atheist, who you know sure. says basically has a very materialist uh, idea of what's about and, and denies design. But if you actually look at what um, gave rise to modern science and how it's practiced today, I'd say science today proceeds based on the assumption of intelligent design, even for the most Darwinian materialist science. I agree with you, but I'd like to dig into your reasoning. So let me say, the, the, what the aha moment for me with that was when I met actually a microbiologist from the University of Idaho, Scott Minnick, years ago. This was in the early years of our program at Discovery Institute. And we were talking, and he was saying the reason that he was attracted to the idea of intelligent design is that it better fit what he actually did in the labs. Because what he would do in the labs, he would go in to say things like the bacterial flagellum, this sort of uh, rotary motor things with bacteria and other things that goes through your system. Uh, and he would try, they do reverse engineering, which is you assume that it actually was designed for a purpose. Right, right. And then you try to understand the parts and how they actually work toward that purpose. Right. Well, that's intelligent design. And in fact, the insight, if you go back to the founding fathers, uh, if you will, of modern science in the 1500s, 1600s, and actually, in fairness to Aristotle, there, there was some experimental science and other things that actually gravitated after Aristotle. I have my, my Catholic friends will you know, point that out. In the Middle Ages, is not, it's really not true that sort of things stopped and that then you know, after that there was this new science. There's some truth to that, but there was a lot going on in the Middle Ages. Having said that, um, it was, uh, it was, they knew that the world and the universe was not chaotic because it was the product of a loving creator, a masterpiece. And so that, uh, that gave the inspiration for why you would try to understand it. Right. And people think, oh yeah, of course we believe that. Well, actually, go back to some of the creation stories from other cultures and stuff. And you know, one of the most interesting things of reading Genesis is reading other creation stories. Now, the old-time liberals would say, oh, read the other creation stories, and the Genesis is just like one of them. Well, no, actually, they can't read text. The thing is, it's so different. <laughs> right, read some right. of like the Babylonian accounts or the Egyptian accounts. It's literally, uh, um, I've taught Bible studies on this where you do that. Uh, you know, one is they're cutting open the, the belly of one god and things plop out. I mean, it's chaotic, it's violent, it's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And then here you get the, the conception coming out of the Hebrew Bible and then Christianity of a universe created with care. It's very good. It's, God envisioned it and spoke for it. Uh, it talks in Proverbs about, you know, wisdom being there with him uh, in, in the creation. Well, that's a different type of world. And if that's the world you have, not this chaotic world where you would expect things not to make sense, if you believe that there's a super rational uh, world, then, well, we can understand it. And, and since it's a super rational God, we may be able to understand it rationally. And that's, if you read people from Galileo, who, you know, uh, you know there's a lot made of the, the controversies over sure. you know, the, the earth and sun, but actually when he talks about mathematics being the language in which God wrote about the universe, 
or people like Robert Boyle, the founder of chemistry, or John Ray, who was a major, actually, founder of, and some would think, founder of the modern idea of species, uh, who was both a pastor and, and a biologist and a, and a plant biologist in England, who wrote a whole book about designing well, nature. Well, 18th century uh, pastors, they were all kind of like, they all had a hobby of like... So again, I'd say it, it is it, it's actually science proceeds because it assumes that we are, live in a design world, and that's why it makes sense. But the thing is, that's how science proceeds today. And insofar as they don't do it, they go down really dead ends. A great example from our own lifetime is something called junk DNA. Oh, yeah, so yeah. So for yeah. the last... Uh, uh, yeah, the assumption was that this, because we don't understand its purpose, it has no purpose. So DNA codes for proteins. In a Darwinian worldview, the only thing that matters is the, the, the mutations in proteins because these random mutations are acted on by natural selection, and then that brings us everything, supposedly, through this unguided process. Well, it turns out that something like 90% or more of our DNA don't code for proteins. Well, if you're a Darwinian, where the proteins are all that matters because that gives rise to random mutations, that's all, then, well, this other stuff just must be junk. And so, okay, well, we don't really even need to look at it because it's junk and, and it's just the, it's what we'd expect from natural selection because it's so um, dead, all these dead ends, and so it just accumulates over time, these dead ends for evolution. Well, I will tell you, when we began this project in Intelligent Design, uh, scholars like Bill Dembski, mathematician with two PhDs and uh, also a theology degree, he's just one of the really a lot smarter than I am, um, uh, smart guys, were saying, well, actually, if you think the world is designed, this idea that there's 90% you know, of the DNA doesn't code for proteins, you shouldn't jump to the conclusion that right. it, it doesn't do anything. Maybe it's there for a purpose, and you should try to look for it. Oh, no, that's ridiculous, that's ridiculous. And that was the standard, it, that was so ingrained, uh, even up to like 2005, six, and seven. I remember, I was interviewed by a Washington Post science reporter. And he was wanting to say, well, what's the utility of intelligent design? It doesn't make any predictions, or this or that. And I actually told him about um, the, well, we think that the so-called junk DNA, because even by that time, for the people who were looking at it, there was beginning to be evidence that, well, no, there was something there. Uh, so that it may be functional, it may, be, may, may actually have a purpose. And his answer was, oh, well, that's really not accepted yet, and so who cares? Well, about a year later, the same science reporter broke the story of something called the ENCODE project. And the ENCODE project, when it came out about around 2007-ish, give or take a year, they found out that all of this so-called junk DNA actually was doing things. They did, it was transcribing stuff. And so this assumption that they were just, it was garbage, that assumption was garbage. And, and it made headlines. And in fact, in the Washington Post story, the same reporter wrote that. And so I sent him an email saying, now are you willing to grant that this idea may have some merit? Did of course, you, sil you, you silence. Right. Silence. Yeah. 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 Right. I always wanted to tell that story, how it actually told it, <laughs> because it was, it's a great illustration that right. even today, when scientists say that or, or assume lack of function without actually looking at it, it turned out to be a dead end. It's actually when they assume that things reflect design and purpose that then you know, they end up finding it. Now, this is not to say that there aren't things that degrade. I, I, as a Christian, believe that we're in a fallen world, and so all that's true. But it is also saying that to jump to this conclusion that you should expect massive 
undesigned garbage that doesn't do anything is, that does come from a worldview. And the worldview is this one of materialism. And I say, that's the science stopper. So we got to, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. One of the things that I, I, I've been teaching about the assumptions of uh, early modern scientists for, for years, and they're, they're firmly grounded in scripture. But one of the things I've been doing lately is to, when, well, prior to retirement, was to contrast that with the creation myth, not of the ancient Babylonians, but of the modern secularists. And when you take a look at that, what you have is the universe explodes into existence for no particular reason. The laws of physics are created at that time, which really governed the laws of everything else, chemistry and so on. By the laws of physics, you eventually coalesce into stars and planets and galaxies and things like that. And on at least one of these things, by the laws of physics, uh, organic chemicals emerge. And then even though the first law of biology is that life doesn't come from non-life, it does. And then by a process of, it, it eventually develops DNA, and then by a process of random mutation, we get your brain. Under these circumstances, why assume that your brain can tell you anything about anything? Why assume that the universe is understandable to the human mind? Why assume any of these things that are absolutely essential for science to function? If you actually start with the assumptions of atheism, you get an absurdity. And well, that makes and, science impossible. Well, and what you also find is what you just uh, you know, arrived at is that in the end, we're purposeless. That there's no real, I guess, warrant for believing that we have an ability to understand the universe. And that uh, because of that, ethics is hampered. We don't really have any real basis to regard another human being as someone to respect and honor and so forth. And you end up in, a, in an environment where you, you kind of create the conditions within which, or you do create the conditions within which, people who want to impose their own vision of order have nothing to kind of impede their uh, attempt to do so. Uh, except just the difficulty of pulling it off. And, and some, some of those people actually attempt it, people like, you know, Hitler, <laughs> you know, and Stalin. And uh, what we become in that world is uh, objects that are just essentially stimulus response mechanisms. I'm going to talk a little bit about that tomorrow, but that would mean, uh, are you familiar with uh, Matthias Desmet's uh, book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism? It, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fine book, but he's... Uh, He's, a, he's um, a Belgian, and he's reflecting. He's, a, he's a, uh, a psychologist, a doctor of psychology, and he's reflecting upon some of the things that occurred during the COVID kind of panic and sort of the totalitarian kind of impulses that we saw in play. And he, he's, he, he makes a, a point that I don't, I don't even see Hannah Arendt make in her you know, great book on totalitarianism, that it's this materialist sort of cosmology uh, that actually is a precondition for totalitarianism. You, don't, you can't have, or you wouldn't have, you, you can still have t t tyrannical governments, but not totalitarianism. Totalitarianism um, is something of a, of a kind of new thing under the sun, you know, in terms of its ambition. I, but I, I would take it a step further, though. If all of that, if all of those assumptions I laid out are correct, 
there is no you in you. That's all, all you are is what you think of as yourself is nothing more than an epiphenomenon of brain chemistry. So, by the way, what, what Glenn just said, a lot of really significant philosophers are saying right now. Daniel Dennett says that exact same yeah, thing. And, and there, the, the honest atheist will say that free will is an illusion. Mm -hmm. The same honest atheist will then give you an argument for atheism to convince you that it's true. Right. <laughs> and, and they'll uh, object when you, uh, you know, uh, overturn their tenure and kick them out of their, and, based and on some moral, you know, argument. The interesting thing is that the person, one of the people who actually recognized that problem was none other than Charles Darwin. Because Charles Darwin, in his autobiography, if you read it, he actually reflects, because people wrote him about things, and he reflects at least a couple of times on his belief in his own theory, but does it even make sense that he can trust what he thinks if his account of how humans got their brains and, and got, became rational is the true account, then that sort of, it, it undercuts his own confidence in his own theory. Now, Darwin then didn't reject his theory, but he was thoughtful enough to actually Wonder about that. And interestingly, that point, that if you really think we were just created by this blind material process in motion and we're just an accidental byproduct of that, well then why would you think our brains coming to that, how would they come to the understanding of that? Why would you think that that process would lead to a, a mind that could get the truth? That, for C.S. Lewis, was yeah, one of the big cardinal problems of materialism that helped lead him sort of away from that and the reason I talked about Darwin is that if you go to the Wade Center that has, uh, uh, this is uh, at Wheaton College, that has many of Lewis's manuscripts and books in his library, and you actually go and get uh, Charles Darwin's autobiography, which is one of the many science books in Lewis's personal library, and you open it up, and you come to the passages where Darwin is talking about, if my theory is true, why should I basically be trusting it you will find that Lewis underlined those passages. And so Lewis was aware of that both from Darwin but also from other people he read. And so, but this is the cardinal issue of, um, it, it's not just that in a materialist standpoint that, that, well, God doesn't exist. In a materialist standpoint, we don't really exist. Right. In the, I, mean, I mean, we don't, they, they can't account for God. It can't account for us. It can't account for us arguing about God or arguing about materialism. So are you familiar with Thomas Nagel? Yes. And, uh, yeah. yep. so, so he's an interesting character because yes. he's an atheist and a materialist yep. and he's arguing for Not purpose. a materialist. Okay, well, let's, let's well, yeah, he's, would he be a vitalist? Uh? So um, I think the best, so Nagel, philosopher, philosopher of science, New York University, is an atheist, very well regarded until he wrote a particular book yeah, in 2012 yeah. that Mind and Cosmos and the, 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 the subtitles, like why the neo-Darwinist account of mind is almost certainly false. It was something like that. Right. Published by Oxford University Press. I mean, I always tell people that if you had told me a year before that Oxford University Press would be publishing a book with a subtitle, why the you know, neo-Darwinian account of mind is almost certainly false, I would have said, what alternate universe do you live in? Because, I mean, it's just, it did. Sure. so it was amazing. But his point, uh, I count him as sort of a modern neo-Platonist. Okay. Because uh, he, he talks about that sense. maybe there are things in the universe that things gravitate towards. So it is, it's guided, but not a personal intelligence. And, right. and he himself is thoughtful enough to admit in his book, and also I think in conversations with others, 
that he's not even sure that that idea of an impersonal idealism even makes sense or is coherent. Right. Um, but it, it, but so it's not materialist. So I mean, Plato wasn't a materialist. Now there are right. lots of debates about whether what Plato's beliefs were, but at least in one interpretation, it's these impersonal, you know, forms sure. that things gravitate towards. Sure. Now, what is what is it, uh, in your opinion, that continues to give Darwinism life? Then I mean, <laughs> at, at such practical at such a practical level, uh, it has uh, this uh, kind of repelling or repellent character. Uh, to, when it comes to you know, you know, human beings and purpose and just sort of the day-to-day -day significance of our lives, and what, what, what gives it its ongoing salience? You know, if I if I had a great answer to that, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd be a billionaire or something. I, I don't know. Um, that's a really good question, and and it is interesting because if you compare Darwin to all the other great greats from you know the, the last century of Nietzsche or Freud or Marx. All those people have had people who have just really ripped into them. And, and although there are pockets of people who still support them, especially in our colleges and universities, still, you know, they've been turned down. Darwin is different. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you try to say anything against him, you'll you'll just uh, be <laughs> you know, metaphorically executed, or just be cleaned up. If you put in an article, I was just dealing with someone this last week, can't really share the example where people, you know, were talking about, well, Darwinism actually had an impact on eugenics. Oh, I can't say that. So I have to take it out. It's just like, what is this? And I think uh, the best I can say is, Darwinism is, is less a scientific theory than it was a cult. Right. And, and Darwin had these people surrounding him um, uh, like Huxley and others who were, who were basically evangelists for this cult. Right. And, and anyone who disagreed with them on the worldview thing would be thrown out of science. And, and so it really has all the trappings of a cult and a, and a religion. And so, and it helped feed a lot of other things. So, yeah, Darwin didn't cause Marxism, but Marx loved Darwin oh, yeah. because he thought it was the death blow to teleology and nature. And uh, you know, Nietzsche was, in some sense, based on Darwin. His idea of the Ubermensch and creating our own reality by uh, force of will was because if you look at what Darwin said life is, it's really bleak. And so the, the only way to get beyond that is to sort of just make it up and just you know, live in the air. And so, uh, and that's sort of the whole postmodern and whatever they call it today, you know, conceit comes from that. And so I think he's, he really was fundamental in all these areas. And then finally, I do think it's about, um, well, if, if things are just material and there is no transcendence, either personal God transcendence or the older Platonism, where there, there's some sort of transcendent standards that guide us of what, say, men and women are, or human body that we refer to, or ethics or anything else, then that means that we are free, and really we're not, because no one's free in anything, in that, but, but we, there's no moral objective reason that we, if, you know, if, if we want to consider ourselves a woman when we're a man, that why we shouldn't do that, I and mean, that's, I think, one of the more extreme manifestations, but that goes back, you know, if, if you want to believe in polygamy, if you want to, uh, actually early, want to believe in materialism, uh, uh, imperialism to eradicate other races because your superior is, is really the right of the strongest. So it was this all-encompassing explanation for all sorts of our worst yeah. proclivities as sinful people. And so 
that may be one reason why it's so hard to get out because it latches on to the, our worst things that people want to do and seems to justify it. And then among Christians, that's a whole other interesting topic as to why there are so many like Yeah, yeah, I, we could get into that. We have a common nemesis that we've talked about at dinner that Dawkins, maybe we won't get into his name. Dawkins, um, I think it was Dawkins, said that Darwinism made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Yep. And I think that's really sort of the, the, the key here. It provides cover for an atheistic worldview that lets you define reality and everything else the way you want to. Um, your ethics, everything else are determined. You know, since there is no standard for ethics, you can do what you want to do. So I'd like to step back a little bit and think a little bit about your example of, of junk DNA and uh, the breakthrough that occurred in the you know, early part of the, the century with regard to some people who said, well, maybe it, there's something to it, and they actually study it. Uh, let's dig into that a little bit. What, what was it about these particular scientists who made it, who were, it, that made it possible for them to like, branch out into this area? I know maybe this is just speculation, but why, why were they willing to make that step when other people thought it was fait accompli, no need to waste our time with that. Yeah, that's a complicated question. I'd say some of the earliest people who were, were talking about it, um, like there's Jim Shapiro at the University of Chicago, uh, who is best I know is probably a non-theist. Richard Sternberg, who's a fellow of ours now, who is a theist, um, who was kind of skeptical of Darwinism. Actually, Jim Shapiro is skeptical of traditional Darwinism. So they, there were, I think, some out-of-box, out-of-the-box, you know, thinkers. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they accumulated enough evidence there that then even people who weren't out-of-the-box, um, you know, the ENCODE study was actually fairly mainstream. And in fact, Francis Collins, who actually doesn't really, who, who embraced the idea of junk DNA, uh, you'll find his name on some of those ENCODE papers is, you know, because he helped he was part of the superstructure that funded some of it, gotcha. and so he didn't do the research, really. And, and oddly enough, he was writing, justifying junk DNA at the same point his, his name was ending up on research refuting it, so that's right, kind of interesting. Right. So I think by that time, by the 2000s, there had been enough that had trickled out by the formative researchers who were sort of more out-of-the-box thinkers to... You know, well, this brings up a couple of thoughts. Uh, one is this uh, kind of the pariah uh, intellectual, yeah. you know, the outsider. That's yeah. usually where the fun stuff is yeah. happening and uh, where the new th discoveries you know, do occur. Um, my personal theory, and it's maybe because, you know, I'm kind of frustrated by these things, is, is that sometimes, uh, you know, some people just need to get old and die. And when they do, it leaves some space for some new thinking. Uh, and so consequently, you know, if, if, if People didn't get old and die. Scientists who, like, you know, are holding on to a particular outlook uh, are in the way of the advancement of science. I know that's a crude way to put it, but no, that, that's often a number of philosophers and others have pointed that out. You know, that science precedes one basically funeral at a time. Right. And, right. and, and there is truth. I mean, I think there's truth that in a lot of areas. You know, yeah. that people are wedded, whether it be to Marxist economics or right. or, or you know sociology or whatever. But, it, but this true. brings up sort of uh, the faddish character of the intellectual life. So a lot of folks assume that intellectuals are honest 
And a lot of folks assume that intellectuals really care about logic and re good reasoning and that kind of thing. But often intellectuals really care about uh, funding and they care about uh, reputation. And when you get to know some world-class scientists, your illusions about scientists are just kind of exploded. You know, just you get to know that these people are you know, biting each other, you know, and stabbing each other behind the back. And I think we're all humans, yeah. um, and so I don't want to sound so negative on science. I'll, I'll be the, I'll be but, the but, but I, but I want to, you know, when going to graduate school, let's say, when I went to graduate school in political science, one of the first things I learned is <laughs> how little we all know, including those in graduate school, including our professors. Right. And what, but you, what you learn is the gift of gab. <laughs> you learn to cover it up. You learn to, even if you don't know, to you know, bluff it out. Right. And that can be a very pernicious, not healthy thing. And so it is unfortunately the case that a lot of the people who you see as talking heads especially on certain news channels, especially for certain government agencies, tend to be the people who learn how to bluff it out the most and have this era, you know, aura of bravado that they know what they're talking about even when they don't. And in fact, some of the people who are the most certain, in fact, I'll actually say, the people who are the most certain often about that the science says this, maybe the people who know the least. Right. And the way you can really tell about that and this is my recommendation to politicians who have to deal with scientists, is, okay, put someone like Mr. Fauci, whom I'll talk about tomorrow, so I won't get into here, <laughs> but Mr. Fauci, next to someone like Jay Bacicero from, from Stanford or some of the, the ones from uh, uh, Harvard or Yale who have a different point of view, and then force him, you know, you're not a scientist as a politician, but force this talking head scientist to actually meet the objections of other experts, and then you can see, and, and either he has a good response or he doesn't. And I think one of the most biggest tragedies of public debates over science and public policy is that you have one or two people who are given, deferred to in a very non-scientific way. It, you know, it, it's dogmatism of the old school that, well, whatever they say is science. No, it's not. The evidence is the, the, I mean, you need to be able to defend it rationally. And if you're not forced to do it, that is a recipe for tyranny, for flabby scientists, for fake science, for tyranny. I mean, it's just, it's, it's awful. But you need those checks and balances. All right. Glenn, any thoughts? I like the phrase settled science. It's one of these contradictions that nobody ever really realizes. Science can never be settled. It's sort of by definition. Close-minded inquiry. Yeah, we end up with a kind of system in which there's kind of a reinforcing set of dynamics. Um, you've got politicians who don't really want to be the guy who has to make the call. They want to be able to say, well, I'm just following the advice of the people who've got the... PhDs, you know, and that kind of thing. Then you got the people who've got the PhDs who are looking for, I don't know, further uh, sort of, uh, yeah, kind of input to help increase their status and so forth. And, you know, when you're brought on stage uh, to provide the, you know, sort of the scientific uh, assessment of a situation, you don't want to be the guy who says, oh, on the one hand, you got this, and on the other hand, you got, they're not, folks are, have not brought you in to do that. They want you to make the pronouncement, like, ex cathedra. This is what is the case. Uh, so you have all these dynamics uh, in play, and 
uh, I'm not really sure. I don't have any set of recommendations myself as to how to help this particular set of problems kind of uh, be addressed. But um, I do want to kind of step back a little bit now and just think about, say, purpose. Because one of the things that, of course, intelligent design uh, is helping us to think about is purpose. So, which means that teleology is something that is legitimate uh, in terms of uh, inquiry study in this, with regard to science. So how uh, are we seeing that develop? I mean, is it something that we see something, is there anything like in, on the horizon, not just at the Discovery Institute, but just more generally uh, in the world of science where we could say, well, there's some signs of hope for yeah. this uh, over here? There are lots of signs of hope. I mean, actually, thank you for asking that because when we talk about how entrenched like Darwin is or materialism is, although that's true, you don't have to look very far to see a lot of people who are not fitting that anymore. Yeah. And even on, say, the Darwinian side, and just a couple of years ago, the um, Royal Society, which is, you know, goes back to Isaac Newton and before, you know, one of the world's premier science organizations, actually did a conference basically on trying to get new theories of evolution. Well, why is that? Because the old one doesn't work. Yeah, and yeah. they brought together about 200 uh, uh, you know, or so scientists from around the world to debate this because they don't know what's happening. And the, uh, so there are a lot of cracks. And then uh, positively, like um, just a few, there's so many people that people just don't, don't know about. So one of my friends is Marcos Eberlin. He is one of the world's top chemists uh, out of Brazil. He's a member of Brazil's National Academy of Sciences. And he wrote a book. Uh, called foresight that actually talks about the evidence for foresight and planning from you know the laws of physics in nature all, all the way you know to the origin of the first life to the chemical structures that he studies. What was really intriguing about that is that he sent his manuscript for try, he tried to get endorsements from three Nobel laureate scientists. And I thought you're not going to get that. These are people he didn't know. I said. They're not gonna. They're not gonna endorse a book about intelligent design, science. What, well, send it to him. He's he's a Brazilian with a very positive outlook, and uh, he's just wonderful. Uh, um, if you all the Brazilians I've known are actually that way. Anyway, so he sent it. He got endorsements for his book from these three people. This was just like two or three years ago. And suddenly it, it went off my head. Things are changing. And so yeah, on yeah. the actual, so things are actually changing at the highest levels with scientists now. Take it back. What's one of the things driving it? Well, one is a sense of hopelessness because we are actually, you don't have to be a Christian or a Jew or Muslim or anything to see our world is going woof. And, and, and these materialist ideas are getting increasingly crazy and just, it's, I mean, think of the story of the Tower of Babel in yeah. the Bible. I mean, or at the end of C.S. Lewis's book, That Hideous Strength, where everything goes down and you, you just shed rationality. It's just, it's yeah. awful. And, not everyone's all that way down to degradation yet, and so they can see it. So, so that, I think, is one thing. But on the positive side, it is not, it is now a respectable position to argue that, um, you know, behind physics is something more than matter. I mean, there's all sorts of debates about, you know, you think about the Big Bang itself, um, uh, the, even the idea of science saying that, yes, there was a beginning, that, right, that's interesting, sure, and, and you know, I know there are various debates on it. Right. But then, literally, as my, my colleague Steve Meyer writes about in his book, uh, uh, Return of the God Hypothesis, 
really, technically, it's what was, what was before the Big Bang. Well, the Big Bang is supposed to be before time, energy, space, matter. So in other words, if those didn't exist, the cause of the Big Bang has to be something that is non-material, outside of time, you know, outside of space. And then, well, then you don't have that many options uh, on yeah. that. And so, so right. that's on that, that's the universe beginning. Fine tuning right. of why we exist at all and, and why our Earth exists. And the, you know, there, uh, one of my other colleagues, Guillermo Gonzalez, who has a fascinating personal story, um, PhD from the University of Washington, he literally came over with, with his family as refugees from communist Cuba with basically their clothes. And then he became a science geek and built an observatory in his backyard growing up. And anyway, he helped do the research for this book that was, he ended up writing a book himself called The Privileged Planet. But before that, there was a book called Rare Earth that when he was a postdoc, he helped do some of the research for. The Rare Earth book is interesting because it was written by people who aren't Christians or theists. But, but the thesis of the book was actually Earth is pretty unique, right. and unique. And why is that? You know, they wouldn't go there. They, they just, right. But but so so in the fine tuning, you have all these things pointing to. Well, this seems to be done for a purpose. I mean, this right. is not how you would think it turned out. Well, then look inside us. Uh, Darwin, um, you know, my other one of my other friends, Michael B. He wrote this book that maybe some of you read, Darwin's Black Box. What he was referring to that when Darwin started writing, he had no conception of the cell. He had no conception of the things that take. He thought. And Darwin actually thought his theory was, well, just give me the first life in the pond, and then I'll give you everything else. Well, that's a big just. I mean, giving the, the first life is not simple. I mean, it really isn't. And so then you look inside us, you, we really have things that actually have, that are molecular machines, but that have rotary motors, that have other stuff that we, that, how do you build that through a process that doesn't have that in view, through this haphazard process? And so I'd say, and then let alone getting to our minds. And despite what you've heard from people like Daniel Dennett that we're just, you know, these meat machines and of, of neurons, no, this is another friend of mine. He's a neurosurgeon at uh, Stony Brook University, uh, Michael Egner. Have him sit down and talk to you for an hour and you will not believe in materials to count the mind. So I would say that the evidence now is overwhelming. It hasn't yet some of the last things to penetrate are things like entertainment, news media, education. <laughs> education. <laughs> um, uh, but the evidence is overwhelming. But now you are seeing it. Like, in 20 years ago, if you told me that three Nobel laureates would endorse a book on intelligent design uh, in chemistry, biology, and physics, I would have said, you're nuts. And that happened just two or three yeah, years ago. Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of good things happening. And, don't, and so... A lot of the people, it's rear guard action when they're, they're trying to... And yeah, that's, that's why it makes it so actually sad that there are so many... The other place where Darwinism is the most sacrosanct is in most of our evangelical Christian colleges. Let's go there. Let's go there. Well, oh, before sure, we go there, sure. just an observation I made years ago. Every time they came up with a new discovery in evolution, they describe it as this was designed by evolution to do X. Right, you know, right. Or one of my favorites was this gene developed as a placeholder to be used later. And there's been some people like Dawkins who have focused on that and said, we've got to get out of using that language because it, 
but then they can't talk about it. Right. I mean, it really is. And that shows why, what I said earlier, intelligent design is not a science stopper. It, that's why we have science. Even today, they're actually operating, the, science proceeds insofar as it proceeds is because they're acting as if things are designed for a purpose. And so when people ask, what's the practical utility of intelligent design? I say, look at science. It's not Darwinism. It's it, materialist ideas that things just happen through accident and unguided processes. That's the science stopper when you actually follow it. The benefit is, for most of science, doesn't actually follow that, no matter what they say. So let's get to this, uh, this, uh, this conundrum, this puzzle. Why is it that institutions that have been established ex expressly to uh, promote Christian learning uh, have uh, kind of refashioned themselves to become Darwin baptizing institutions. I, I guess that's one way to think about it. And why, and why aren't we seeing um, really um, good sort of cutting edge science informed by the Christian faith coming out of those places? I have three words I think describes it, and I think it describes some other things too. And I speak as someone who was at a Christian college, Christian university for 12 years, had earned tenure there, uh, had good relations with my colleagues, but you could just see everything in, in miniature what was happening you know, overall. Uh, I've come to term it Stockholm Syndrome Christianity. <laughs> That's and pretty good. We might want to give folks a definition of so Stockholm. So Stockholm Syndrome goes back to uh, years ago in the 1970s. There was this bank robbery in Sweden, and the people, a uh, strange thing happened. That after they, the, the, the hostages were released, they ended up actually being supportive of the people who had held them hostage, and they were hostile towards the police. They, in other words, they identified, ended up with uh, the aggressor. And I think that in, in most Christian uh, colleges, faculty, where do they go to, where are they trained? Well, they go to the same secular graduate schools as everyone else does. Hey, man, those guys were kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, really, it's true. And by, and by the time, and I went to a secular graduate school. No, that's right. And so you, when you go through, uh, after multiple years, maybe six, seven, eight years, depending on when you get your PhD, depending on your discipline, how long it takes you to write your dissertation, you have imbibed, you have studied at the feet of people who hate Christianity often, uh, and they have imparted their worldview, and you have adopted that, that even if you don't personally adopt it, because what happens to a lot of these people is they, there becomes this real gap between their personal faith in Jesus and really their objective belief in anything else. For their beliefs in everything else, they end up adopting the point of view of the people who basically have debunked Christianity. And so that becomes their peer group. And it's not that they think of themselves as compromising, it's they've actually bought into that so much that that is, um, that's why they actually get, this is what really got me it was always aggravating, actually, with my colleagues at Seattle Pacific University, which has actually been in the news in more recent years because it's really completely flipped. But uh, I was there longer ago, but it was already happening. Is these people were more upset by the what they consider the Yahoo parents or the pastors or the stupid kids who came in. Those were the people, they had less identification with them than they did with 
oh, the people we want to be happy with us at the University of Washington, or the people. And so they really had adopted this mindset of, um, of, of the, the secular materialist worldview, and that's how they operate. And so they're the last, and, and, and so it does end up this constant need for approval from right, them. Right. And so it means that I will sadly say, when all this changes, and you're seeing places like the, you know, the Royal Society and Nobel laureates who are willing to talk about intelligent design, the last people, unfortunately, who are going to embrace anything new and good on this are probably at most of our Christian colleges and universities. Right. That's because they will only embrace it when the surrounding culture embraces yeah, yeah, it and, right. and because they want approval. And I say this, I'm sad to say it, but I know, I know, the but personal it's, it's, stories of people, this is how they think. Well, yeah, I've got a background in the academy. Yeah. I'm on the board of a college. I'm on the board of an academic association uh, that actually is made up of academics. I, I hang around with academics a lot. and uh, You're going to have to stop that, Chris. <laughs> That's right. It's ruining me. It's ruining me. <laughs> but it's, it's not just the sciences. It's in every discipline yeah. that we see yes. this, this sort of uh, longing to be accepted by people who have rejected the very most important thing to you. Well, another part of it is that you can always tell when a trend is about to die when <laughs> the church adopts it. <laughs> that's right, that's right. We, we know that wokeism is just about dead because now we've got all the pastors wanting to be woke. I mean, it's just... It's, it, I mean, yeah. this is uh, historical fact. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, and I, and it's, it's a joke in a sense, but uh, this is like my third kind of round of wokeism. You know, this is not like the first time this stuff has ever cropped up. It's, it's just now finally the megachurch pastors are on board and you know it's over then. You know, it's just like the last time around. Um, so I guess... Uh, Can I say one other thing? Yeah, please. The saddest thing that I ever experienced as a college professor is seeing uh, really devout families sacrifice yeah. and go into huge amounts of debt to send their kids to Seattle Pacific University where I taught thinking right. wrongly that they were sending them there as opposed to a secular institution because they were going to get this faith integration and, and in fact they were paying for the privilege of basically having their kids learn that the Bible was riddled with errors that uh, and, all, and you name it they would learn it and their kids come out, even if they're still Christian, they're, they're largely, they're broken in many areas. And the parents went into debt for the privilege of that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've seen it many and times. And that is so sad. And I say in many cases, you may be better served sending your kids to a secular university when they're prepared to know what they're going to than to send them to a Christian university. Now, this is not true. There are some good Christian institutions. But you, if you're a parent, I just urge you, don't just believe the sales pitches. I mean, when I was at Seattle Pacific, it was really interesting. For 12 years, as we went further and further away from the historic Christian faith, one thing went more toward it. It was the branding and the salesmanship. Yeah, yeah. So we became, because the branding study said that was their niche. And so right. the, and I knew people who were in development and other stuff who really, some left because they just couldn't deal with the yeah. fact that they were bamboozling people. Right. And, and so as the university went this way, toward the culture, the branding went the other way. And it was, yeah. it was really sad. Well, you know, here's a, here's a thought. Uh, my, my, uh, my sense is that, say, in the 40s or the 30s, if you were a believer, 
you knew that that meant your, I guess, uh, intellectual life and sort of the life of the larger uh, academy were uh, irreconcilable. You know, you were going to teach at some school like Wheaton, you know, uh, which at that time would have been considered a pretty marginal school. So today it's a top 100 school. Uh, my oldest son went to it. My, one of my daughter-in-laws uh, graduated from it. But, uh, and I've got friends on faculty, but uh, it's not that. Uh, it's it's uh, something quite different. I, I think that what you have at institutions like that today uh, is they're uh, kind of, it's harsh to say, but they're uh, secularizing influences in the church. And um, there's still a lot of good folks in those places, um, uh, but I'm not sure what to do about it. I don't have a, a solution, um, but that's the situation we think, I, th I think we have. I think it is. I think there are some good Christian colleges. I think part of it is forewarned, is forearmed. I, th right. I think that there are things you can do to uh, prepare uh, your kids. Uh, but also, again, I don't think, you may not want to send them to a Christian college. Because if, if you're going to get materialism, okay, you might as well get the real it, thing, get the real thing <laughs> in, in a way where at actually many secular colleges there are uh, good apologetics groups like Ratchet Christie, others that actually are, are do, you know, that there may actually be a, a you know, group of really serious, thoughtful, yeah. intellectual Christians that, that could help them. But don't think that you're just, you know, you're writing the check to what calls itself as a Christian institution is really sufficient. It's not. And it's actually more dangerous because you assume that the Christian institution, as a student going in, you think you're going to be getting the faith here and your guard isn't up the way it would be at a secular school. And I had students who came into my office. I mean, that was the case. I remember one kid who at Salem Pacific, the rage when I was there was open theism which is, God doesn't know the future. I know Tom Ward. Yeah. And, and that was all they taught in yeah. the, the theology department right. there. And it has interesting synergies with Darwinianism. And, and so yeah. had a student who's one of my advisees come in and was just distraught over it. And you know, I'm a political science professor. I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, a theologian. I'm not, but fortunately, I was able to give him some, some resources on that. But I think just how sad. And, yeah. and he debated whether leaving SPU, and I don't actually now remember whether he did, over that he had come there really seeking. He had searched hard for a place where, you know, he could integrate his yeah, Christianity. Right. And he was so distraught right. by what he was actually confronted with. Well, Glenn, you were at Calvin. I was at Eastern Nazarene. So these are, you know institutions that we've been connected with, which are ostensibly Christian, you know, the foundings. Things were really different at Calvin 28 years ago when I was there. Yeah, sure. Um, but even, even at that point, there were certain areas where you could, you, you could see the train coming. Right. I, I would say that, like, so I'll use one other example from Seattle Pacific University, which got in the news last year nationally because you had the faculty vote some 70% against the board of trustees because <laughs> they wouldn't junk their statement on traditional marriage. Over 70% of the faculty at SPU is against biblical marriage. Do not, it is not a Christian college. I mean, it's in any traditional sense anymore. And a lot of people were, were you know, thankful to the board for not repealing and stuff, but I will tell you, having been there, 
it was inevitable what happened because, and it, and it was the board's fault. Not I'm saying the current board that's trying to do something, but you had people who were well-meaning, conservative, theological, often from business, who were on that board who refused to actually do what they were called to do, which protect the mission of that institution. And so while I was there, one of the most dispiriting things was how the board actually enabled that. And I wouldn't, uh, this will sound harsh, but I would not want to be them at, at, you know, Christ covers all our sins, but I wouldn't want to have to explain to God or people in heaven why I did that. I mean, there was one member of the board who was really, and I'm not going to get into names here, but was really involved in a parachurch Bible teaching organization, another in missionary, while their own school was going down the tubes, and they wouldn't even lift a finger. And that, I think, is unconscionable. And, I, so, and so it's not inevitable, but I do think that people in authority um, who, in that case, you know, board members and things of these institutions, they can be turned around, actually, but it does take courage as well as wisdom, and that, that failure of nerve and courage, you can, you reap what you sow. And it's not, it's not, so it's not, sometimes people think, well, how does this happen? Well, actually, it's, it's pretty, um, pretty common. Probably pretty common and pretty easy to understand how it happens. Right. It's, uh, that doesn't mean it's easy to prevent, but it, right. it's not a mystery. Yeah, we, we've seen um, many institutions in the course of this country's history which had uh, very uh, strong Christian uh, outlooks or philosophies to guide them uh, when they were founded, Harvard, Yale, you know, lots of them. Uh, but we don't associate those institutions today with Christian faith. And why uh, we keep creating new institutions to just hand them over the way we do is, I think, something that I, I don't have a, I, I agree with you that this is a pattern we've seen before. Um, but I don't have a, uh, an adequate, and I think your point about uh, courage and doing what needs to be done is, is right. Um, but at the same time, um, we've not seen much of that. We're humans, so we're sinful. So there's no perfect solution. And one of the hardest things, is, as Abraham Lincoln, who wasn't a Christian, sadly, did give a speech about the perpetuation of institutions. You know, the founding of institutions is hard but the perpetuation right. is hard. So that's why anyone who has a family, what you're doing with your kids is one of the most important things that you could ever do. You're right. preparing them for eternity. And so it, it is, there's no perfect solution, but I would say that you know, thinking about perpetuating and handing on, and there's a lot in the Bible about that. And, so, and, and you can see the good results of that, regardless right. of what's happening in the culture. You know. When I go back to my own experience a long time ago in schools, if you were a conservative Christian, you were better off going to a secular university than a liberal Christian school because a liberal Christian school wouldn't give you the time of day. You could go to a conservative Christian school and that would, that would work too. As a matter of fact, if you went to a conservative Christian seminary, you would learn the liberal arguments as well as the conservative arguments. But if you went to a liberal seminary, you would never hear the conservative side. That was the situation when I was in, in undergrad and in grad school. Nowadays, I don't know where you're safe. All right. Right. I don't know where, you, I mean, some of the conservative seminaries are still going to do what they've always done. But 
it seems to me, as I've observed this from inside the academy, there's less and less room for alternate opinions, alternate viewpoints from the one that the sort of cultural elites have shaped for us. You know, one of the things that I didn't talk about when I was talking about government limitations on government is we're seeing something unprecedented now with government, media, education, and industry all united around an ideology right. that is exerting pressure in every direction. And it's affecting certainly state universities. I mean, I was in a third tier university and it even hit us. Sure. You know, Research One institutions got it really early and I, I was able to dodge the bullet right. on it because I got out before it was too bad where I was, but I, I, it was getting strong even there. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the liberal theological schools are, you know, they're, they're completely on board with that same ideological perspective and it's showing up in the conservative schools as well. I don't know where you go. Right. Well, uh, with that happy thought, <laughs> we should probably wrap this up. Uh, we do want to provide a little time for questions. Imagine there are a number of things that uh, maybe were uh, brought up that you might want to ask us to get into a little more deeply. Um, if you do, then just, um, I guess, let Pastor know, and he's got a microphone. Yeah, you can get my attention or <laughs> yeah, Mark, stand up. Where do you think uh, the church would be today if more Christians in the uh, late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, believed as Charles Hodge when he considered Darwin in his book, What is Darwinism? And his conclusion, it is atheism. Others concluded that right. So the question had to do with Charles. Sure, sure. The question had to do with Charles Hodge and Charles Hodge and his take on Darwinism, and uh, his discernment that it was essentially atheism. That's a really interesting question. I think it, it, the history of science is kind of interesting. Um, when Dar Darwin's theory basically has two big points. One is that we're the result of sort of um, we're. We, we grew up from simpler organisms, so through a process of descent with modification. But the truly, really radical thing was that it was an unguided process that didn't have us in view. After the first 50, 60 years, like when Charles Hodge was writing, the majority of scientists didn't actually embrace the unguided part because they couldn't see, given the limited variations you have throughout nature, that they were so slight, how you could actually get through that process, us. And so, in fact, one historian, Peter Bowler, actually talks about it as being the non-Darwinian revolution in biology because, so people gravitated towards orthogenesis, other sort of things that directional evolution that wasn't so unguided. So I understand why everyone didn't go the route that Charles Hodge did because a lot of the people actually didn't really accept that part of Darwinism. But then that changed <laughs> in the early teens, actually right around the time of World War I, and then to the, especially by the 1930s and 40s. 
where the re-rise of Mendelian genetics, and they thought, oh, well now we know that there are genes, things that Darwin didn't know, and you can have major mutations, and that can introduce really big changes. That, and so that then, from then on, you had sort of, I'd say, Darwin's core idea, which Darwin did support, that things were this unguided process. So I don't know that you can necessarily blame the people who didn't side with Charles Hodge, although I would say that I think he was right at the time, because you know, I think some of the things that happened after his time, that's when people really gravitated towards this really Darwin's unguided process. Um, I will say that, again, this, this cultural compromise of an unwillingness to engage at the highest level with the actual argument. So, many Christians, once the, 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 the Darwinism the, the, as an unguided process sort of triumphed intellectually in the secular elites, they retreated, and, and some of them retreated in the area, well, so reason, if it misleads us, you know, we are sinful, which of course we are, so we don't, we don't need to make arguments on that, because it's, and so we just burrow down with our faith stories. And I will say that was a really, really poor choice. <laughs> that doesn't do justice to the breadth of Christianity from day one, because the God of the Bible is about a real God who active in real affairs, and you don't just burrow down. It's not just a faith story. And so I think we are dealing with um, that problem of, of where we see, where many Christians and churches seeded reality, what they consider, and, and, and factual reality and empirical reality. Now, there's more than that. But they, they said, oh, well, no, the church isn't about that. Church is just about these things that you can't verify. Well, of course, there's some truth to that. It goes well beyond. I'm not saying you can prove everything in the Christian faith. And, and in fact, we have, I believe we have the Bible that's God's revelation that teaches us things that we wouldn't know otherwise. Nonetheless, Christians have always maintained there is a connection between faith and reason. And when you say that there's not, then you have people going to youth group, I mean, I've seen this constantly, who feel warm and fuzzy with these great relationships, but then when they go out into the big bad world where they're confronted by their first person who actually gives them a blast of what seems to be, well, this is what reality really says, they wilt because you know, people, my friend Steve Meyer does talk about that you, know, you can't, the heart is great and we're not just you know, rational creatures, but if it doesn't, if it's not in connection with the mind, it's not gonna, your, your warm feelings aren't gonna persist <laughs> in the real world. They have to go together. So I think that was the tragic so sort of. For a very nuanced answer to an oversimplistic question. <laughs> it wasn't a simplistic question, it was a good question. Yeah, right over here. Guys, go ahead. Go ahead. Stand up. Right. Uh, I wanted to major, one theme from Stephen, several of Stephen Meyer's books that has really grabbed me. And I'm not a scientist, I'm a pastor, but I care very much about the intersection of these fields. But is the inference to the best explanation. It, it just seems like such a hopeful way of moving forward in putting the emphasis not on guarding our opinions, but, but what is this reality that, that science has discovered and how do we best explain it? And I, I just love the way you, you address uh, 
John, you're a doctor. John, John's fine. Address the Big Bang and uh, how it just leaves people without any possibilities even to precede it. But, but, but I, I think I, it seems such a fruitful uh, means of, of moving forward, but I, I see it so little employed publicly. Yeah. And and it can it it seems to me that it could put put materialists and so forth in more of a defensive position. Can you really explain this reality? I mean, we think professors think and seek to persuade, which contradicts their view that they are materialists. They're, I mean, this yeah. is so the inference of the best explanation, which, which is being brought, or method of multiple competing hypotheses, is just really, simply, it's, you have something you want to explain, say, the origin of, of a molecular machine inside you or something, or our mind, and you think about and, and research, well, what are the possible explanations that we know that are out there? And you come up with that universe as best we can, you know, and then you go through them and see, well, how likely are they based on the evidence we have and, and which of those multiple hypotheses actually stands up the best? And again, this is, does not give you, uh, this is not a sort of deductive argument. It's not that um, we'll necessarily give you absolute knowledge on anything, which probably as humans we can't have. But it is, I, I do think it's a helpful way of viewing a lot of things, which is where you have something to explain, and then you come up with what are the possible explanations that we know from our own experience, the types of things that could explain it, and then you go through, well, does this really explain that? Uh, based on what we know, does it explain, is there a connection? Well, no, okay, you throw that out, does this, and then, you know, you may be left with one or two explanations, well, then those are maybe the most serious ones you should, you should be considering, and it is an interesting yeah, This is your last question, and then we're gonna give opportunities for you guys to engage these fellows. Um, Maybe tonight a little bit, but there's also going to be Q and A twice tomorrow, so we're going to be true to our time. So last question, and, and Karen, I'm going to jump you just for a second because that gentleman back there had his hand up first. So uh, last question, go ahead, sir. I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, from your from your perspective, does does meaning perceive being, or does being perceive meaning? And then a follow-up question: What? If any of the sciences are absolute you know, in this field, that field of knowledge, that's a classic. Uh, that's a classic question. Yeah, it is a classic question. Yeah. Um, I would say um, I'm a lowly political theorist. Um, so I would say, but as a as a humble Christian, I would simply say that in some sense, being and, and meaning. I'm not sure that that's a meaningful question because uh, if one believes in uh, God, okay. oh, okay. In this temporal plane of being, does meaning perceive being, or does being perceive meaning? On our temporal plane of existence, that's I probably should use. Um, I I do think, and maybe this shows my Platonic and Aristotelian traits, as well as Christians, is that um, formal causes uh, and final causes. Uh, in some sense, uh, do precede, or, or say a, a plan precedes uh, the sorts of things you see in nature. And so that, um, so I guess in that way, 
meaning would precede being. Um, but again, I'm probably not the best person to, to answer that. But I, I think that, again, the way we conceive of things in nature is you, uh, if, you think, if it represents planning and foresight that went into it, then there's a plan in the mind of someone or, or eternal forms, I guess, but I happen to think it's in the mind of God, then that would precede uh, the actual creation or, or, or building of things. But I'm not sure that that actually is getting at what you're asking, but I'm not sure that I'm necessarily capable of addressing exactly what you want, but maybe one of the... Well, there's, there's uh, the metaphysical matter of uh, being as being uh, kind of uh, the starting point. But we're talking at that point of being itself, not in terms of like Glenn's being or my being, which are derived, uh, but in terms of I am in the Christian Judeo-Christian way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, I would think if, if you're taking it in an absolute sense, I don't think there's a way of distinguishing them in an absolute sense. But he specified in the temporal realm, and I would be inclined to agree that meaning comes first. Um, when you look at Genesis, God says, "Let there be light." The the use of language is is sort of an interesting thing because what language does is it expresses thought. And so the creation of the world by God speaking it into existence is an expression of the mind of God, which I would associate primarily with meaning. And so being comes out of that in the temporal realm. But when you're talking about God, it, it's, it, it's, it, it, it's both yeah. simultaneously. Yeah, well, I think one of the things in play here, maybe the questioner is, is, is thinking of this, when you think about existentialism, and existence preceding meaning is kind of the kind of a thing that's characteristic of that movement. But anyway, yeah. The the second question was if if there's any science that's absolute. Um, my answer would be absolutely not, <laughs> uh, because it because it is the nature of science to science never reaches final answers, because you you never know when you're going to run into a black swan that you're going to need to explain. Newton looked like a final answer, and then Einstein came along. I would agree with that. But the queen of science is, is theology. Right? There you go. Absolutely. And we're going to wrestle with some of these things tomorrow. Let's give these guys a hand.